games. And while you're opening your Bible, I'm going to go get my Bible. Thank you. If you don't have your Bible, a Bible on you, um, you'll find one there at the end of your row, hopefully. Um, I just noticed today we're starting to get a little lean on Bibles, which is awesome. Uh, and that leads me to my next comment, and that is if you don't have a Bible at home or one you can read easily, take this one. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. Um, I'm thrilled to say, hey, we got to restock our Bibles again because people are coming uh, and taking them home, and we pray reading them and uh, growing in God's Word. So, um, Turn to, uh, as I said, the book of James. Um, did this a couple times as we were working through Habakkuk and had lots of feedback. People found it helpful. So um, I just want to pause and give you just an overview of your New Testament and how it's kind of organized and maybe help you make sense of it a little bit. Um, before we do that, maybe I need to mention your, your Bible split into two main parts, right? You have the, the Old Testament, the first 39 books uh, of the Bible from, from Genesis through to Malachi, um, and it's called the Old Testament to the Old Covenant because it speaks of that Old Covenant, the agreement that God had with the people of Israel through Moses, and, uh, and so that's, um, that's the first section, and then the, the next section is called the New Testament, the New Covenant, and, uh, and that takes us from um, Matthew through to Revelation, and, uh, and it speaks of um, the work of Christ, what he came, what he accomplished, how we now live in that. Uh, and, and so the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The New Testament is all about Jesus and what he accomplished and, and, and how we now live as the church. Um, now, just to, to look at the organization of the New Testament, I hope you're familiar with this, and maybe it's just a, 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 a refresher, but for some of you, this will be new. Um, the first four books, uh, as you're flipping through, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are called the Gospels. Those are the story of Jesus' life. Uh, actually, more so, they've been called the story of Jesus' death with extended introductions. Um, that's the point. Uh, it's the life and death of Jesus um, from these four different perspectives. Same story, different angles. Um, the next book stands a little bit by itself, the book of Acts, and that's the history of uh, the beginning of the church and the Holy Spirit coming and the church spreading out uh, around the world, um, and, and so it's unique in, in that part, but it's not really a solo book. It's actually part two to the book of Luke. They, they go together, Luke and Acts. Um, and so you have the Gospels, you have Acts, uh, and then you get into what is called the Pauline Epistles, and that's just a fancy way of saying uh, the letters that Paul wrote. Um, and, uh, and so Paul wrote 13 letters in our New Testament, a good swath of the New Testament. Um, the first nine are letters to the churches. So you have Romans and First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First uh, and Second Thessalonians. Um, those are the names of cities. And he was writing a letter to that city, to the church in that city, to encourage them, correct them, strengthen them, whatever it is. And, uh, and then the next three uh, are called the pastoral epistles. Um, there are three of those, two to Timothy, one to Titus, and, and both of those guys were young pastors uh, starting churches. So I love those books. I need those ones. I hang out there uh, a lot. Um, and then finally, you have Philemon, which is more of a personal letter, and if you're curious what it's about, um, it'll take you less time to read it than it would for me to explain it to you. It's a great little epistle. Um, so that's the Pauline epistles, and then we have what are called the general epistles from Hebrews through to Jude. Um, they're called the general epistles because unlike Paul's epistles, they're not written to specific churches. They're written to the church 
in general. Um, and, uh, and so these books get their names from their authors. And so as you're looking at um, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, Jude, those are the names of the people who, who wrote those books. The one that deviates, of course, is Hebrews. Um, and the reason it's called Hebrews is because we don't know who wrote it. Um, some say Paul, some say Apollos. Uh, I've heard Aquila and Priscilla put forward. Um, bottom line, we don't know. So, Gospels, Acts, Pauline epistles, general epistles, and then the last book, uh, Revelation, and it is unique. Uh, it kind of stands uh, on its own. Uh, we call it apocalyptic literature, and it's Jesus telling John, this is what's coming. This is what it's going to look like before I come and as I come. Uh, and so, um, that's, that's the New Testament. That's kind of the overview of where to find things. And so we're camping out uh, early in these general epistles, the book of James, um, written by James, the brother of Jesus, and uh, to the, the Christian Jews who were scattered all over uh, that Eastern world. And as we saw last week, the book of James has this series of tests, a series of uh, markers identifying authentic faith. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to jump on our website, go on SoundCloud and look us up, and, uh, and you can listen to that sermon from last week. It really does kind of set the stage of this is, this is where we're going for the next five months. This is uh, where we're going to be spending our time. Um, but the first thing that James points out as a test of authentic faith um, is the testing of trials. And let me just read it for us to bring us up to speed. James says, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so this authentic faith finds joy even in the midst of trials, knowing, trusting, having faith that, that God is working through those trials and that God is using hardships and, and even the suffering of his children uh, in order to, to bring them to maturity, to produce in them a character and a, and a completion and his ultimate perfection. And so when it comes to the, the testing of trials, a faith that cracks, a faith that that gives up, a faith that turns away from Christ under the pressure, uh, ceases to trust in the Lord, and then the goodness of his, his, his sovereignty is a false faith, is an inauthentic faith, a faith that was superficial and, and counterfeit to begin with. Whereas a, an authentic faith, a true faith, is, is strengthened and is, is made even more steadfast and immovable and, and is, has hope and peace. An authentic faith, when, when tested by, by trials, doesn't break, but rather it grows. And so you say, John, that sounds great. That looks really nifty on paper, um, but I live in the real world, and this is hard. I'm suffering here. I'm in the middle of a bunch of chaos that I don't understand. My world is upside down. I'm hurting and I'm confused. I want to trust God through this. I love the, I love the thought of finding joy in trials, but how do I get there? How does that actually happen? How do I come to that place of, of finding joy and engaging in this process of growing in steadfastness and maturity? And James hears that question. And he answers it. And he says, what you need is wisdom. Look at verses 5 to 8 
with me. This is where we'll spend our time this morning. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, it's tempting to think as we kind of read through this, um, that, that verse 5 is a new topic. He's, he's left behind the idea of trials, and now he's talking about wisdom. And, and uh, James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. It kind of has that flavor to it. He's talking about wisdom, and he's, he's kind of short in these statements. Uh, and so it's tempting to think he's, he's moved on. He's done with trials, and he's on to, to wisdom. But that's not the case, and, and I can show you why. Um, the book of James is actually uh, written in the most sophisticated, polished Greek of the whole New Testament. It's very refined. It's very intelligent. And, uh, and he's constantly making these little word plays. And this is the first one. You notice the end of verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then he grabs that word lacking, which is actually a bit of an odd word that he uses, and he pulls it down and he puts it into verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he's, he's throwing us a hint here. He's making this kind of literary connection. Um, are you going through trials? Are you under the pressure and stress of having the, the authenticity of your faith tested? Are you in that place of having to, to trust the Lord and, and grow in steadfastness? God's moving you toward completion, toward maturity and, and perfection. And, and what you need for that process, what you're still lacking, the reason you're not there yet is wisdom. You're lacking wisdom. And so he makes this literary connection kind of tipping us off that this is the application. This is, this is more on this idea of trials. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, and we're going to ask three questions. What do we need how do we get it? And then how do we not get it? What do we need? How do we get it? How do we not get it? Um, but before we go any further, we just read, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously. Let's, let's start there. Um, let's, let's go to our God and, and ask for wisdom as we turn to his word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true and trustworthy. Uh, God, I lack wisdom. I need your strength your wisdom this morning, would you be at work? Lord, I think we all lack wisdom. I pray that you would give us your wisdom as we read your word, as we come to you in faith this morning. Father, I pray that my words would be faithful and true to your truth. Um, God, if I have anything prepared to say that, um, that is not in line with your truth, that those words would just fall to the ground, that they would not be heard. And God, that your spirit would be among us, building us up, transforming us by the truth of your word, and that you might be glorified uh, as you build your church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our first question that we need uh, to ask is, what do we need? And, and we've kind of already answered that question. It's right on the face of it. James says in verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, we need wisdom. What is wisdom? What are we talking about? Well, remember, we're talking about uh, James, who was raised in a good, solid Jewish home, and he's writing to Jewish Christians with the same background. So their shared understanding, their shared um, 
concept of wisdom comes from the Old Testament, comes from the book of Psalms and Proverbs and the, the wisdom literature. Uh, and that's a really great place, by the way, to find your understanding of wisdom, because that's where God tells us this is what wisdom is. And, and so wisdom at its core in this understanding is is the understanding needed, the, the perspective, the, the, the view of life in this world that is necessary in order to live in a way that pleases the Lord. Okay? It's, the, it's the understanding needed to live in a way that pleases the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where wisdom starts, is understanding who God is coming in the, the fear of the Lord, as, as Curtis unpacked uh, for us a few weeks ago. Um, the significance of the fear of the Lord, understanding who he is, living rightly according to who he is and his glory. And, and so wisdom, as we often say, is the right application of knowledge. Right? Being smart, having heaps of knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. It's not the same thing as being wise. Um, I got good marks in college. I did really well. I was not one of those guys that kind of breezed through. I had to work my tail off. I was up earlier and up later and put more time in, uh, I think, than anyone I know. Um, but I did it, and I, and I made it through in four years. I got two degrees and straight A's, and I went into my first church, and it did not end well. What happened? Uh, I, this is what I was trained for, and I aced the training. I had all of the knowledge necessary to do it. I lacked wisdom. I didn't have the understanding to apply that knowledge rightly. Verses 2 and 3, James says, oh, he's, he's told us, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, knowing knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Here's, here's what we know. We know who God is. We know his sovereignty. We know his goodness. We know that, that he is working through it. There's, there's knowledge that we need, but that knowledge is not enough. Now that you know it, you need to live in it. You need the wisdom to live rightly in, in accordance with that knowledge, to make right decisions in light of that knowledge. Um, because this is true, now what? And James is a little sneaky here. Um, he's kind of gentle and unassuming in the way that he says this. Um, he puts it as this conditional phrase, right? This if statement, if anyone lacks wisdom, uh, and yet the, the Greek has this neat trick to it where it, it has these different kinds of conditional statements that either presume a yes or no answer. And, and this is one of those. It's kind of like a rhetorical question. Um, really, it's more like he's saying... Um, if anyone lacks wisdom, and you do, um, hint, hint, that's you. He's telling us we lack wisdom. So good news, um, you can stop freaking out now. You can breathe out. You don't need to worry that the, that the people around you are going to get close enough to figure you out, to find out that you lack wisdom, right? That you don't have it all together, that you don't, you're not the perfect Christian. You don't always do the things you should do. You don't always say the things you should say. You, you don't always make the right choices that you should make, right? Cat's out of the bag now. James spilled the beans. Repeat after me, I lack wisdom. That's what I thought. It's a little sad. Come on, I lack wisdom. Okay, turn to your neighbor, tell them, you lack wisdom. Oh, that's so satisfying, isn't it? That's much easier than I lack wisdom. We lack wisdom. We don't have it. We need more wisdom. 
Listen to what Proverbs says about wisdom. This is what we're lacking. Pay attention. Proverbs 3.13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and who gets understanding. Blessed is the one. Proverbs 24.14 says, know that wisdom is honey for your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. Proverbs 8.35, wisdom is kind of personified, and, and wisdom says this, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 4, 7, and 9, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Wisdom is a good thing. Anyone else read that and find themselves highly motivated to get more wisdom? This is what wisdom accomplishes. Wisdom brings into our lives blessing and joy and life, and wisdom gives us favor with God. That's where we want to be. That's what we need. This is it. This is paramount. And it's wisdom that guides us through times of trial, times of hardship and testing to a place of joy, to a place of steadfastness, and ultimately to a place of completion and, and maturity. We need wisdom. So how do we get it? How do we get it? That's our, our second question for the morning. Um, look at the rest of verse 5 here. If any of you lacks wisdom, and you do, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it'll be given to him. What a phenomenal promise. Ah, you lack wisdom, so ask. And that's a command, by the way. Ask God. Do it. Our lack of wisdom, our, our need for wisdom, especially as that need is made so obvious to us and apparent to us as we go through trials and, and we struggle, it ought to drive us to prayer. It ought to drive us to our knees. Wisdom that we need um, to live a life pleasing to the Lord, to find joy and steadfastness in trials, that, that wisdom that Proverbs promises that will give you hope and life and joy, it doesn't come from man. Okay, it's, it's, it's not something that you can conjure up. It's not something you can figure out. So often we hit hard times and what do we do? We go inward. We go ingrown. Right? We wrestle and stress and we mull it over in our heads and we lose sleep over it as we try and figure it out and look at it over every angle and we bear this weight, this burden of I need wisdom, I need to find a way. Or so often we go out, we go horizontal. And we look to self-help books and, and, and the secular counselors and the wisdom of this world. And, and, we, and we ask our friends, hey, what do you think? And so often without knowing it, um, we just go after whatever we think is right. Whatever we happen to feel is good. But we don't realize that what we think and what we feel has been molded and shaped and pushed around by our culture and our world and our own sinful hearts. So listen, Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Right? Don't trust yourself. Don't believe in yourself. Don't be true to yourself. Don't do what you think is right. How's that for countercultural? It's the wrong answer. Don't do it. 
1 Corinthians 3, 19 and 20. The wisdom of this world is folly to God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. The wisdom of this world doesn't play out well. It's not good. It's not true wisdom. It's folly in the eyes of God. Don't let that shape our decisions. Here's how Proverbs sums it up. 1625, there is a way that seems right to a man. Let that sink in. It seems right to you. We think about it and we look at it and that looks good and we're confident of that. And then he says, but its end is the way to death. Looks good. Looks right. We have confidence in it and it leads to death. So don't go inward. Don't go horizontal. We need to go vertical. We need to go to God. We need to ask him for his wisdom. Proverbs 2, 6, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. What comes from the mouth of God? The word of God. This is our wisdom. This is where we go to know what God thinks, what God uh, says we should do. This is his wisdom. And guess what? So often I open up this book and I say, oh, that's not what I would have done. That's not what I thought. That doesn't feel good to my heart. That's painful. That's hard. That's the difficult path that I wasn't going to choose. It's God's wisdom. So genuine faith responds to trials in prayer, asking God for wisdom. And there's just no way around it. The degree to which you neglect prayer is the degree to which you trust your own wisdom and neglect the wisdom of God. How often are you on your knees? How often are you spending with the Lord, not dropping your grocery list, but seeking wisdom and seeking to know him, to be transformed by his word? The degree to which you neglect that is the degree to which you trust your own wisdom and neglect the wisdom of God. We ought to be a people of prayer. And so we ask the Lord, and, and that verb there, by the way, apparently I have a lot of nerd points in here for you nerds. Um, that's the present active tense. And, and so it's keep on continually asking, keep going. Don't just ask and walk away, but, but ask regularly, consistently, desperately, expectantly of God, give me wisdom. I need wisdom. Uh, we get wisdom by asking the Lord for it. And then look at this amazing promise. Ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. I love this. The, you just can't get it into the English. It doesn't work grammatically, but the, the Greek there, there says, let him ask the giving God. It's, that's who God is. It's his nature. He is the giving God. And he gives generously, abundantly. And so we ask the Lord for wisdom because he doesn't give sparingly. He's not chintzy with it. He's not cheap with wisdom. And he gives without reproach. The idea here is, is without judgment, um, without keeping account. Like if, if you ask someone, hey, can I borrow your car this weekend? And they kind of looked at you like, don't you have a job? Don't you have your own car? Why haven't you bought a car yet? Like what are you, what are you doing? I mean, I guess, fine, you can, you can borrow my car, but let's not do this again. Like you need to take care of yourself, right? That's, that's kind of giving with reproach. There's some judgment mixed in there. Not God. 
He doesn't, give, he, he doesn't say, oh, you need wisdom again? Like, come on, I gave you wisdom last Tuesday, and now... You, no, he, he delights to give wisdom. He gives without reproach, joyfully, willingly, happily, because he's, he's the giving God. That's what he does. That's who he is. He's not a cruel God who, who puts us through trials, who brings us into these tests and, and then holds back from us the very thing that we need to, to succeed. No, he, he allows these trials, brings these trials into our lives for the very purpose of causing us then to trust in him, and, and he's delighted when that happens, when we come to him, and, and when, we, when we bring ourselves in our need, and he's able to show himself sufficient to fill that need. Jesus says, Matthew 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you for everyone who seeks, sorry, everyone who asks, receives, everyone who seeks, finds, and everyone who knocks, it will be opened which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven who is, will give good things to those who ask him? So, so parents, how many of you sat your family down um, to dinner this week and mom brought out a plate and said, here you go, kids, a rock and a snake, have fun. Like, careful, it's poisonous. Um, no. no, you give good gifts to your children. You feed them a meal that's, that's nourishing and, and delicious, and, and, and we treat our kids well. Even, even we who are wicked know how to, how to give good gifts to our children. Don't you think God is a better parent than you are? Don't you think he knows how to supply us what we need better than you know for your children? Of course he does. So we ask God, and we rely on him, because he's the God who gives, and he gives abundantly, and he gives good gifts. We go to him for wisdom in our time of need, to give us that godly wisdom, the wisdom that, that helps us live in a way that, that pleases him, that brings about that blessing in our lives, that, that, that fruitful, wonderful hope that we have through trials. So that's what we need. We need wisdom. That's how we get it. We get it by, by crying out to God in prayer, submitting ourselves to him, depending on his wisdom. Now, the backwards question, how do we not get it? What do we, what do, we do that prevents us, that hinders us uh, from getting this wisdom for God, from God that we need? And this passage takes a sober turn all of a sudden. We've been talking about this dividing line between authentic and inauthentic faith. And, and here it is again, starting in verse 6. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You say, wait a second, that's totally inconsistent, right? I mean, he, he just said that God gives to all without reproach, and now you're telling me uh, not to that guy? What's going on? Well, this is why you don't take Scripture out of context. This is why you don't take one little verse or sentence and kind of run wild with it. Um, James is not being inconsistent. He's still talking. Um, he's still explaining himself. He's still telling us what he means. And, and so he gives generously to all without reproach of those who come to him, in faith. And it comes back to this idea of authentic faith. 
These two responses, um, the one asks in faith and the one doubts. And the, the differing response is the, the difference between authentic faith and inauthentic faith, counterfeit faith. Those who are growing in steadfastness through trials do so with wisdom because they ask God in faith and the Lord gives it. And, and because they have this wisdom from God, they trust him and they grow in steadfastness and, and faith and it all flows together. But those who doubt whose faith is not genuine, do not receive wisdom from God, do not therefore grow in steadfastness and maturity and completion. Now, if you're like me, you read these verses and begin to wonder, do I even have the ability to ask without doubting? Can I do that? And I'm the pastor for crying out loud. I mean, I should be this example and I have things that I'm praying for that, that I wrestle with. And in fact, I was thinking about it, looking back over uh, the last years and, and there are things that God has done that not only did I not have the faith to, to ask and not doubt, I didn't even have the faith to ask for it. And so we're told now in the middle of trials, being pressed and 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 under stress, lacking wisdom, with our faith being tested, we're supposed to ask with no doubting? Do any of us stand a chance of having this prayer answered? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, absolutely we do. Here's why. Let's look closer at this idea of asking without doubting. And first, I want you to consider um, Jesus' response to those who doubt throughout the Gospels. Matthew 11, John the Baptist, right? Now, this is John who was baptizing, preparing the way for the Messiah, saying the Messiah would come, and Jesus shows up, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this is him, this is the one who is, who is so great, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals, he's here, and, and then by Matthew 11, John's in prison, he doesn't know it yet, he's about to be beheaded, and he sends his disciples, he sends his followers to Jesus to ask are you really the one? Like, is this it? Is it really you, or should we look for somebody else? He's doubting. He's fearful. He's, he's in prison. This is not going the way he thought it would go. Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Jesus doesn't smack him down. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus quotes from Isaiah a passage about the coming Messiah and says, look, this is being fulfilled in front of you. It's happening. John, hang on. Mark 9. The father of the, the boy who was possessed by a demon. Imagine the, the heart wrench of that. Your sweet child taken over by a monster. And he goes to Jesus. And, well, first he goes to the disciples. And the disciples can't do it. They can't cast the demon out. And so then he goes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, can you help me? Can you, can you save my little boy? And, and Jesus says, it is possible if you believe. And you know the words he responds with. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? He's wrestling, he's doubting. I, I, I believe, I want to believe, but I'm, I'm doubting, help me, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus heals his son, he casts out the demon. One more example, probably the greatest example, John 20, doubting Thomas. Jesus had died and rose from the grave. Of course, all the disciples were there to see him on the cross, to see his body put into the grave. That was obvious. And then Jesus appeared to 10 of the disciples. 
Judas has taken off, uh, and Thomas is not there. And, and the disciples see him, and they rejoice together, and then Thomas shows up. They're like, we saw him. Jesus rose from the dead, just like he said. He's, he's here. It's happened. And Thomas says, uh, I don't know, guys. Come on. Really? I don't believe it. I'm having a hard time here. In fact, he goes so far as to say, I won't believe unless I can put my hands in the holes in his fingers, my fingers in the holes in his hands, and my, and my hand into his side. Like, think of the audacity of that claim. It's insane. Who would ask that? What does Jesus do? He shows up again. And he says, okay, Thomas, poke away. Check it out. Come and see. He alleviates his doubt. He meets him in his doubt. He encourages him. Jesus is so tender and kind toward the doubting. Now, let me be careful. Our, our world so often treats doubt as some kind of virtue, right? Like the skeptic, that guy on Facebook who trusts nothing, um, he's kind of held up in awe. Wow, he doubts everything. No, the Bible never honors doubt. Doubt is never a good thing. But Jesus is so tender and gentle toward doubters. So why then, as we come to James, this harsh language? Why does James sound so different from Jesus? That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. Well, let's look at the nature of this man here in James. This man's doubt um, is, not, is not the father crying out, I believe, help my unbelief. No, he's, he's like a wave in the sea that is driven to and fro, tossed by the wind. He's double-minded. He's unstable in all his ways. So this is, not, uh, this is not nagging doubts and a heart of faith, crying out for help. This is, this is not the sincere believer crying to the Lord and just, and just having that sense of unsure. This man is double-minded. Literally, the Greek says double-souled. He has, he has two hearts. He has two minds about it. Um, John Bunyan, I think, talks about this guy uh, in, his, in his allegory, um, The Pilgrim's Progress. And he introduces us to this character, Mr. Facing Both Ways. Um, I love the ridiculous names, but you know who you're meeting. Mr. Facing Both Ways. Which way are you going? Yep. He's going both ways. He has no allegiance. He has no commitment He's not following Christ and, and, and hard after Christ and wrestling with doubt. No, he's, he's going this way and going that way. He's not sure if he's going to follow Christ or if he's going to run after the things of this world, if he's going to trust God or if he's going to trust his own wisdom. That's, that's still up in the air. That's still to be decided. He is a divided devotion. He's like a wave of the sea. He has no anchor. He has no, uh, no clear stability, firm direction. The wind blows this way, he goes that way. The wind blows that way, he goes that way. He, he's, he's, he's tossed back and forth. And so one moment, he's a Christian. I'm following God and he's praying for wisdom. And the next moment, he's not concerned about the Lord. He's doing his own thing. He's going his own way. He prays for wisdom one day saying, yes, God, I want to I please you. And in his heart, he would say, oh, I'm absolutely sincere. I don't have any doubt about that. I want to I please God. But the next day, he's forgotten about that prayer, and he's solving his problems his own way. He's doing it himself. He's serving himself again. Ah, well, I, just, I decided to go this way. That person, that kind of doubt or that kind of double-minded person, 
He's unstable in all he does. That person, listen, should certainly not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Not because he's not because, not because God is unfaithful, not because God is inconsistent, but because he is. God doesn't reward that double-mindedness, that inconsistent devotion. He, he doesn't reward the one that, that kind of comes and goes and, and follows Christ kind of in passing when it's convenient. Bringing this back to the idea of wisdom, person facing a trial, a test, a hard time, and in one moment they're, they're looking to God and asking for wisdom, but instead of waiting patiently for the Lord and walking in obedience and depending on Him and entrusting themselves to Him, they, they just go after worldly wisdom. My marriage is hard, and, and we're in a trial right now, and it's a struggle, and it's a burden, and they, they pray for God's wisdom. They pray, God, would you, would you restore my marriage? But but it doesn't go the way they want. It doesn't happen according to their timing and they don't like what the Bible says about marriage and so they decide to opt for divorce or separation and we'll just solve this the way the world solves marriage problems. They jump ship. I'm out. Going my way. Maybe on the reverse side, the, the trial is being single so desperately longing for a spouse, for companionship. And, and they pray, Lord, give me wisdom to trust you through this trial, to wait for you, to wait for your, your timing, and it's hard. And then an unbeliever shows interest. And that desire for companionship outweighs the desire um, to honor the Lord and, and wait on his timing. And in disobedience to God, they give themselves to the unbeliever. Maybe it's depression and and, and, and sorrow or, or, or something that, that weighs on you and, and rather than, than trusting in God and waiting on Him, you say, you know what, I'm just going to soothe this myself. I'm going to turn and, and, and deal with my, my sadness and my frustration with, with alcohol or with pornography or with watching football or whatever it is. That's where I'll find my hope and my joy. That person to whom obedience to the Lord is just kind of one option on the table, um, that person uh, is not living by faith and has no claim on the promises of God. They're deluded if they think God's going to honor that. And here's the thing, we need to take this back a step. We have all lived at one time, not as double-minded even, but as single-mindedly opposed to God. Right? We are born in this inherently self-centered, self-serving nature that worships self rather than God, that, that loves worldly wisdom because worldly wisdom is all about me and the way I want to go and hates the wisdom of God. We're born that way. It's obvious in infancy and we walk into it. And it's idolatry. We've put ourselves in the place of God and, and, and we deserve from God, not his good gifts, but his wrath, his righteous judgment. And so it's so easy in our day and age to read a passage like this and, and say, that's not fair. How would God withhold wisdom from someone who asked him? Why wouldn't God give to that person? That's not fair. But the reality is, if we were thinking clearly, we would be so shocked that God allows this double-minded man to draw another breath. He deserves judgment. You're right, that's not fair. Fair would be complete and immediate destruction of every one of us. That's fair. 
and the gift that Christ offers. The salvation that he purchased at great cost when he died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. That we could escape the the judgment and wrath that we rightly deserve. Yes, it's freely given to the undeserving. It's given by grace to those who have faith, but right at the heart of faith. Of this idea of being reconciled to God, having our relationship with God restored, is that we begin to live in right relationship to God. That is, we begin to treat him as if he were actually God again. Faith means taking ourselves off the throne and giving him our allegiance 100%. Giving him the honor, the respect, the obedience that he deserves. That's why Jesus says, whoever would come after me must take up his cross and follow me. Why do I need a cross? What's a cross for? Well, a cross is for putting someone to death. Oh, who's going to die? You are. That that old self-centered me, that me that, that lived as if I was God, he needs to die. He needs to be gone. Jesus doesn't call us to add God as one of our advisors around the table to make the Bible uh, an optional extra but to own him as our Lord, our master. And you can't have faith without a recognition of who God is as our king. To walk in obedience. And so those who are of this double-minded nature who toy with the idea of obeying God as long as it kind of suits them, but the next day they go back to serving themselves again and just go through this loop and this cycle, that kind of double-mindedness and instability in its complete form, in its full bloom, is clear evidence of an inauthentic faith. A faith that's not genuine, it cannot save. Not only will God not give that person wisdom, but that person should expect nothing good from God. He will not save. You can't can't play God, right? You can't pull one over on him. You can't give God kind of this nod of allegiance and and obedience when it suits you and then then cry out to him and expect his mercy. Galatians 6, 7 says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever, whatever one sows, whatever seed you plant, whatever you put in with your life, that you will also reap. This is evidence of an inauthentic faith, someone who may have claimed the name of Christ, but has never truly been born again. Who's never actually truly been a follower of Christ, and, and they will receive nothing from God. That's terrifying. And again, we need to come back to this recognition of our own ability to deceive ourselves and be honest here. Is that me? Am I a double mind? Am I half allegiance to the Lord and half to myself? Do I, do I obey when it's convenient and just decide to go my own way when it suits me? If that's you, you need to repent. You need, you need to take that old man and, and put him to death. You need to cry out to God to change your heart. let's be honest, back where we started, we all lack wisdom, don't we? All of us. Even those who truly trust Christ, even those who who have a genuine, authentic faith, who have walked faithfully with the Lord for years, we still lack wisdom to one degree or another. Yeah, he is 
working his perfection in us. He is building us in, in steadfastness and bringing us toward maturity, but we're not there yet. We're far from it. And what does it mean if we're not yet complete, if we're not yet where we should be? It means that we're lacking something. What are we lacking? We're lacking wisdom. That old man, um, he keeps climbing down off the cross and, and, and trying to crawl back up onto the throne. Those tendencies uh, of serving self continue to creep in. And so um, we pick up our cross and we take it with us because you're going to need it. Um, we continue to put that old man to death. It's not as though we're immune to this. We battle doubt. We feel the, the draw of sin and sometimes we give in to it because we lack wisdom. And so here's the call of this passage to the believer Recognize your need for wisdom. Ask the Lord who gives generously. Trust him. Fight against that, that double-minded desire. Be, be quick to identify that and to repent of that and to turn your allegiance to Christ, even to, to cry out with the, the father of the demon-possessed boy, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Repent of your double-mindedness. Confess it. Turn away from it. Cry out with, with David, Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Listen to this. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's what we need. A united heart that fears his name. That's wisdom. Or as the disciples, John 6, after a, a particularly difficult teaching from Jesus, listen to this. It says, after this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many people heard that who, who had called themselves disciples and went the other way. They were following Christ. Now they're not. They're not disciples anymore. We're done with this. That's too far. It's too much, Jesus. And so Jesus looks at the 12. And he says, do you want to go away as well? And I love this. Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He doesn't say it's easy. He doesn't say, oh, this will be fun. He says, we have nothing else. You have the words of eternal life. You have wisdom. This is what we need. And we can't get it anywhere else. Do you believe that? Do you trust him? Don't waver. Don't be pushed to and fro like the, like the waves of the sea that get tossed back and forth. But set your heart to trust the Lord no matter what. Walk in obedience to him. And if you lack wisdom, which you do, ask. Ask the giving God who gives generously without reproach and ask in faith because he loves to give it. He loves to provide richly for his children in need that we might be built up in steadfastness, able to find joy in the trial and be matured and brought toward completion. Would you pray with me? Father, Give us wisdom. Lord, we lack wisdom. I want to pray for those who are struggling this morning. I pray for those who are in the midst of trials and hardship, who have been pulled in different directions. God, I pray that, that you would break them in a beautiful way and that out of that brokenness, you would bring faith. God, that you would bring steadfastness where there has been wavering. 
God, that we would not turn to our own wisdom, that we would not turn to the wisdom of this world as we are so prone to do. God, guard our hearts. Help us to come to you for wisdom, to open your word, to see your truth there, to be transformed by it. God, give us faith that we might grow to know you more, to walk in closer intimacy with you and obedience to you. Lord, that we might have that wisdom that brings hope and joy and life and that pleases you. Father, we beg in Jesus' name.